Hey friends, it's me, Logan. I want to sincerely thank you all for your patience in waiting for new content. A lot of life has happened in my two years since finishing residency. Moving across the country, starting a new job, buying a house, becoming a dad, all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of catching up on life that happens once you get this time back that you've sacrificed during your years of training. But to me, the purpose of this podcast is more than simply the dermatologic knowledge that we share to help you help your patients. It is also the message represented by the Grenzone itself, finding calm and joy in the midst of the inflammation that is the controlled chaos of dermatology training. I hope this pause serves as a true example that your time with family and friends and the happiness provided by that is most important. I love this podcast and I love being a dermatologist, but I love time with my family more. I haven't been ready to spend the time needed for quality content until now, but it is one of my life goals to get through the entire reaction pattern in the Grand Zone style. So let's get back into it with reaction pattern number four of five, the dermal reaction pattern. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Grenzone, dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're going to jump back into the fourth of our five reaction patterns with the dermal disorders. When it comes to dermal rashes and lesions, the pathology is obviously in the dermis, with or without surface changes. This dermal pathology can happen in many ways, one being when something is deposited into the dermis. These deposited substances can be endogenous or exogenous materials and include things like amyloid, lipid deposits seen in xanthomas, calcium deposits as in calcinosis cutis, urate crystals causing gout, or mucin deposition leading to myxedema. Although these conditions are not all that common, they often represent other systemic problems that we need to be aware of. Remember, our skin is often a canvas for what's going on internally. So, we've got a lot to cover as I'm going to give you the short and sweet today for several disorders, which we'll do with the help of Dr. Grumpy Pants. But first, we'll start with a fresh reaction pattern review and mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor does it represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Our five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. Today we're starting the dermal disorders, and like the papulosquamous disorders, we'll break the dermal reaction pattern into five subcategories, with one being depositional disorders that we'll discuss today, two being inflammatory dermal disorders, which are further subdivided based on the type of inflammatory cells present, which can include histiocytic, lymphocytic, neutrophilic, eosinophilic, and mast cell disorders. Then the third dermal subcategory are infections, including cellulitis, erysipelas, atypical mycobacterium, and deep fungal infections such as blastomycosis. Four, we have proliferative disorders, including dermatofibromas, cysts, adnexal growths, and our purple plum differential, including Kaposi sarcoma or amelanotic melanoma. Then fifth, we're going to include our subcutaneous disorders, including the various forms of paniculitis such as erythema nodosum. When it comes to subcategory number one, the dermal depositional disorders, I want you to remember the mnemonic ALBUM with A for amyloidosis, L for lipids, B for bone or calcium deposits, U for urate, and M for mucin. 
As usual, we'll walk down and review this differential one condition at a time. I once recorded an album including a hit song, I'd do it all for the Club Azal. But that's a story for another day. Now tell me, you little nincompoop, what exactly is amyloidosis? How is it categorized? And what skin changes can be seen? The amyloidoses are a group of disorders where a fibrillar protein called amyloid is deposited into tissue. Most natural proteins are in an alpha helical form. However, in amyloidosis, protein fibrils are in an abnormal beta pleated sheet. As you've probably heard before, amyloid will show apple green birefringence when stained with Congo red and viewed with polarized light. There are different types of amyloid deposits that lead to different types of disease. There can be primary systemic amyloidosis, secondary systemic amyloidosis due to chronic inflammation, and the three types of localized cutaneous amyloidosis, including macular, lichen, and nodular amyloid. We'll focus on the forms that tend to cause skin disease, which include primary systemic and the three localized forms. But, for completeness sake, also know that there can be hemodialysis-associated amyloid caused by beta-2 microglobulin, along with the secondary AA amyloid seen in hereditary syndromes such as Muckle-Well syndrome or familial Mediterranean fever. So, let's quick talk primary systemic amyloidosis. These patients with primary systemic amyloidosis have a plasma cell dyscrasia or a myeloma where plasma cells overproduce antibody light chains. These excessive light chains form amyloid deposits that we call amyloid L, aka AL, for the light chains. Before we talk clinical features of primary systemic amyloidosis, let's go on a quick tangent and discuss what plasma cell dyscrasias actually are. Plasma cell dyscrasias, aka monoclonal gammopathies, or paraproteinemias, refer to a spectrum of disorders where plasma cells secrete monoclonal immunoglobulins, or proteins, called M-proteins. Again, plasma cell dyscrasias are also called monoclonal gammopathies, or paraproteinemias, and they refer to a spectrum of disorders where plasma cells secrete monoclonal immunoglobulins, or proteins, called M-proteins. The monoclonal gammopathies are often described by the class of Ig present, such as IgG or IgA, along with the type of light chain present, whether it is kappa or lambda. Examples of plasma cell dyscrasias include monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, aka MGUS, multiple myeloma, plasma cytomas, and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Sidetracked once again... Like I asked, what are some of the clinical findings of primary systemic amyloidosis and localized amyloidosis? In primary systemic amyloidosis, AL amyloid deposits can lead to carpal tunnel syndrome, macroglossia, shoulder pads from deposition in the deltoids, and possibly involvement of the kidneys, GI tract, heart, muscles, and nerves. 
Skin changes occur in up to 40% of primary systemic amyloid cases, which include purpura most commonly, due in part to amyloid deposition in vessel walls. We call these pinch purpura due to predilection for areas of minor trauma, such as the periorbital areas. Other skin changes in primary systemic amyloidosis include a variety of waxy or purpuric papules, nodules, or plaques that favor the flexures. Diagnosis of primary systemic amyloidosis will include detection of identical light chains on urine protein electrophoresis, aka UPEP, or serum protein electrophoresis, aka SPEP. Skin biopsy can also be helpful, which often has a higher yield when done on the abdominal fat pad or you guessed it, on the rectum. Then treatment of primary systemic amyloidosis is often multidisciplinary depending on which organs are involved and may include melphalan, prednisone, and colchicine. If you don't get these next few questions right, I'm going to make you perform the next rectal biopsy. Next, let's discuss the three primary cutaneous amyloidoses, which include macular, lichen, and nodular amyloidosis. Macular amyloidosis classically presents with hyperpigmented macules in a rippled pattern near the scapula in association with notalgia paresthetica. And what is notalgia paresthetica? It is localized paritis, usually medial to the scapula, that is caused by impingement of spinal nerves. Once patients itch or rub this area long enough, it can lead to the macular amyloid deposits that we see as hyperpigmented macules. Treatment targets correcting the nerve impingement, which can be done with osteopathic or chiropractic manipulation, while also addressing ergonomic changes if patients hold a certain posture at, say, a desk job, which may be contributing to their nerve impingement. Other treatments for notalgia paresthetica specifically include addressing symptoms of paritis with capsaicin or other topical anti-inflammatories, while treatment of the amyloid itself may include topical steroids, topical DMSO, and UVB. As for lichen amyloidosis, it presents with hyperpigmented papules rather than macules, which tend to coalesce on the shins more so than on the thighs, forearms, or back. Both macular and lichen amyloidosis can coexist. They are both derived from keratin rather than light chains, and both macular and lichen amyloidosis are associated with a syndrome. Can you think of it? Both macular and lichen amyloid are associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia or MEN syndrome 2A. So again, remember both macular and lichen amyloid are derived from keratin, and both of these two types of amyloid are seen in MEN2A. So then what about nodular amyloid? Unlike macular and lichen amyloid derived from keratins, nodular amyloid is derived from light chains, aka AL, which remember is the same type of amyloid as primary systemic amyloid with its pinch purpura. Nodular amyloidosis has deeper amyloid deposits in the dermis and sub-Q, leading to solitary or grouped waxy papules or nodules that favor acral areas and the face. You've also got to know that nodular amyloid can be associated with Sjogren's syndrome and other autoimmune conditions, and progression to systemic amyloidosis can occur in around 7% of patients. Again, nodular amyloid favors acral areas and the face, is associated with Sjogren's syndrome and other autoimmune conditions, and can progress to systemic amyloidosis in around 7% of cases. Okay, let's switch gears to something that we Americans know all too well, lipids. 
Tell me four types of cutaneous lipid deposits, along with my favorite question for imbeciles like yourself. What are the features of the five familial hyperlipidemias? All right. These hyperlipidemias are the bane of every dermatology resident's existence. So I'll give you some tips to remember the gist of each, which should get you about 90% of your test questions on them. But first, let's discuss the types of xanthomas. They can be eruptive, tuberous, tendinous, or plain xanthomas, all of which often have a yellow hue on exam. Eruptive xanthomas present as pinkish, yellow-orange papules that favor the butt and extensors. They may be itchy and kebnerized and are typically seen when triglycerides reach 3,000 mg per deciliter. These eruptive xanthomas can be hereditary in the types 1, 4, or 5 hyperlipidemias that we'll discuss in a minute. Eruptive xanthomas can also be caused by other conditions that increase triglycerides such as alcohol or Accutane or both together, but hopefully not. Then there's tuberous xanthomas, which remember that tuber basically means lump or bump. Therefore, tuberous xanthomas present as pink-yellow papules or nodules on the extensors and especially the elbows and knees. Then we have tendinous xanthomas, which describe their location on the tendons, such as the Achilles. And lastly, plain xanthomas, which present as large yellow plaques. A couple things to know about plain xanthomas. Number one, xanthelasma is a type of plain xanthoma that favors the eyelids and has around a 50-50 chance of associated hyperlipidemia. Number two, there's a condition called diffuse normolipemic plain xanthomas, whereby patients get multiple plain xanthomas in the setting of MGUS or a multiple myeloma. So again, remember xanthelasma on the eyelids has a 50% association with hyperlipidemia, while diffuse, normolipemic, plain xanthomas can be associated with monoclonal gammopathies. Okay, let's hit a quick music break to let all that sink in for a bit before we talk more hyperlipidemias. So, this next segment is a gift to the residents. I will attempt to teach you 90% of what you need to know on the hyperlipidemias for exams in 3 minutes. But disclaimer, it doesn't cover 100% of what you need to know, and it comes with some quirky mnemonics, so please don't judge. And I'll only mention it once, so re-listen to it as needed. So, you have to know types 1 through 5 hyperlipidemias. Type 1 affects one of the first steps in lipid metabolism, whereby lipoprotein lipase, aka LPL, can't break down the chylomicrons which carry triglycerides. Therefore, patients with type 1 hyperlipidemia, aka familial LPL deficiency, can't break down chylomicrons which leads to high triglycerides and eruptive xanthomas. Then, types 2 and 3 hyperlipidemias have tendinous and tuberous xanthomas. I'll start with the letter T, 2, 3, tendinous, tuberous. Easy. Types 2 and 3 also have associated atherosclerosis, so think about types 2 and 3 blocking the tubes or arteries with atherosclerosis. 
Then, remember type 2 hyperlipoproteinemia has a defect in ApoB, which is the second letter of the alphabet. Type 2 ApoB dysfunction. Type 2 also has xanthomas in two other areas, the intertriginous areas and between the fingers. Then, type 3 has a defect in ApoE, so spell out the number 3 and notice that it has two E's. Type 3 ApoE defect. Type 3 hyperlipidemia can also have xanthoma striatum palmary, which has three words. Type 3 hyperlipidemia, xanthoma striatum palmary. Then for type 4, remember the Roman numeral IV, which helps you remember increased VLDL, in addition to increased triglycerides leading to eruptive xanthomas. Then there isn't a whole lot that's unique about type 5, but remember that it does have eruptive xanthomas. So, which hyperlipidemias can give you eruptive xanthomas again? That would be types 1, 4, and 5. Eruptive xanthomas in types 1, 4, and 5 hyperlipidemias. Here's a hard one for you. What do we call it when bone deposits in the skin? So, we've covered amyloid and lipid deposits. Next up in the album mnemonic for dermal depositional disorders is B for bone or calcium deposits. We call it osteoma cutis when bone forms in the dermis or sub-Q tissue. Osteoma cutis can be seen in genetic disorders such as Albright hereditary osteodystrophy. More commonly, osteoma cutis presents as smaller white papules on the face at sites of acne lesions or scars, for which the diagnosis is called miliary osteomas. These miliary osteomas are actually quite rare and have been treated with tretinoin and a variety of surgical methods including excision and ablative lasers. Next, remember that calcium can deposit in the skin, which we discussed at length in our episode on bumps in a baby. So here's the gist. Calcinosis cutis takes on four main subtypes. One, dystrophic. Two, idiopathic. Three, metastatic. And four, iatrogenic. Dystrophic calcinosis cutis occurs after damage to the skin by inflammation or trauma. Examples of dystrophic calcinosis cutis include juvenile dermatomyositis, Crest syndrome, or at sites of acne or stasis ulcers. Then, idiopathic calcinosis cutis has no known cause and includes scrotal or labial calcinosis, along with subepidermal calcified nodules. Next, there's metastatic calcinosis cutis, which refers to patients who have elevated levels of calcium and or phosphate, which then leads to calcium deposits in the skin. One example of metastatic calcinosis would be calciphylaxis, which is more of a sub-Q disorder caused by calcium deposition in small and medium-sized vessels in the skin leading to necrosis. Then lastly, there's iatrogenic calcinosis cutis caused by the healthcare providers, such as extravasation of calcium gluconate from an IV site. Treatment of calcinosis cutis depends on the etiology. For dystrophic calcinosis cutis seen after heel sticks in babies, lesions tend to self-resolve after 18 to 30 months. Autoimmune-associated calcinosis such as that seen in Crest syndrome can be treated with a variety of calcium channel blockers such as diltiazem, nifedipine, or amlodipine. <laughs> My freaking dad gets these freaking bumps on his fingers. What is that all about? No. The U in our depositional album mnemonic stands for urate deposition seen in gout. 
Remember that monosodium urate, which is the ionized form of uric acid, gets deposited in tissues leading to acute arthritis, renal impairment, and papules and nodules of tophaceous gout. The arthritis most commonly affects the first MTP, for which we call it podagra, but the arthritis can also affect the ankles, knees, and feet. Gout favors men and can be caused by either overproduction of uric acid and or poor excretion of it from the kidneys. Overproduction of uric acid can be seen in conditions with high nucleic acid turnover, such as cancers or psoriasis, along with high purine diets with alcohol, red meats, or shellfish. As for chronic tophaceous gout, it usually occurs around 10 years into the disease course and presents with fleshy to pink-yellow papules and nodules that favor the ears and extensors, especially on the fingers and toes. These tophi occur in less than 10% of patients with gout, so remember 10 in 10. Gouty tophi develop approximately 10 years into the disease course and occur in less than 10% of patients with gout. Treatments for acute gout include a variety of NSAIDs such as ibuprofen or naproxen, colchicine, and corticosteroids in more severe cases. Keep in mind that NSAIDs may need dose adjustments if renal involvement is present. Then the chronic gout treatments include colchicine, allopurinol, and febuxostat. If tophi are present, they may slowly shrink away with these medical treatments. Otherwise, they may require surgical removal if they're causing issues such as ulceration, infection, or impinging on nerves. Okay, let's close out the album. Not as good as Taylor Swift, the Backstreet Boys, Nicki Minaj, or Ricky Martin, or whatever you kids are listening to these days, but it'll do. So what can you tell me about mucin deposits in the skin? There are a variety of conditions and lesions where increased mucin deposition can be present in the skin. I want to briefly touch on four such conditions. Number one, scleroedema. Number two, scleromyxedema, three, pretibial myxedema, and four, follicular mucinosis, aka alopecia mucinosa. So here's some quick snippets for each. Scleroedema classically presents with redness and induration involving the upper back, shoulders, and neck. This scleroedema will show a thickened dermis that is loaded with the mucinous hyaluronic acid. Scleroedema is broken into three clinical forms, type 1 scleroedema after strep throat or a viral infection intending to resolve spontaneously over weeks to months, type 2 scleroedema without prior infection but with a chronic course and associated IgG kappa gammopathy, and lastly type 3 scleroedema being associated with diabetes mellitus, possibly due to glycosylation of collagen. So for the types 1 to 3 scleroedema, remember IgD type 1 with infections, type 2 with gammopathies, and type 3 with diabetes. But don't mix up these three forms of scleroedema, spelled S-C-L-E-R-E-D-E-M-A, with our next mucinosis, scleromyxedema. Scleromyxedema, aka papular mucinosis, is a rare condition with waxy papules that favor the head and neck, and they can take on a linear arrangement and coalesce into larger plaques. Over 80% of scleromyxedema cases have a paraproteinemia, which is usually IgG lambda. For the residents listening, you can remember scleromyxedema's association with IgG lambda because the lambda symbol is basically an upside-down Y shape for the Y in scleromyxedema. Write it down and you'll see what I mean. 
So for the mucinoses, that covers scleroedema and scleromyxedema. Lastly, we have pretibial myxedema and follicular mucinosis. Pretibial myxedema is seen in less than 5% of Graves' disease patients and classically presents as bilateral, firm, non-pitting, fleshy to violaceous brown papules and plaques on the shins, ankles, and dorsal feet. Again, pretibial myxedema is seen in less than 5% of Graves' disease patients, but may also be seen in hypothyroidism and classically presents with firm nodules or plaques of a variety of colors on the lower legs. Then lastly, there is follicular mucinosis, aka alopecia mucinosa, where these mucin deposits affect the hair follicle. It can present in kids or adults with pink papules or plaques with follicular prominence and possibly alopecia that favors the head and neck. To make a long story short, kids with follicular mucinosis tend to have an acute self-limited form that tends to resolve over months to a few years in these kids. However, adults with follicular mucinosis need to be followed closely due to a possible association with lymphomas or folliculotropic mycosis fungoides. Alright my friends, I know that is a lot of info in one episode, but before we close out with a quick summary of these five main dermal depositional disorders in our album mnemonic, I want to also mention that other disorders to consider include lipoid proteinosis, the porphyrias, and colloid milium, which will all be discussions for another day. So, let's hit a quick music break before the end summary. For the dermal depositional disorders, I want you to remember the mnemonic ALBUM with A for amyloidosis, L for lipids, B for bone or calcium deposits, U for urea, and M for mucin. Amyloidosis can impact the skin in primary systemic amyloid and the three localized forms. Primary systemic amyloidosis has AL amyloid deposits, with 40% of patients having skin changes including pinch purpura and a variety of waxy or purpuric papules, nodules, or plaques, and these favor the flexures. Macular and lichen amyloid are derived from keratin and present with hyperpigmented macules and papules, while nodular amyloid favors acral areas and the face, and is associated with Sjogren's syndrome or other autoimmune conditions, and may progress to systemic amyloidosis in around 7% of cases. Lipid deposits can present with eruptive, tuberous, tendinous, or plain xanthomas and can be associated with the types 1 to 5 hyperlipidemias. B is for bony deposits or calcium deposits leading to calcinosis cutis, which takes on four main subtypes. 1. Dystrophic from damage, 2. Idiopathic, 3. Metastatic, and 4. Iatrogenic. U is for urate depositions in gout, where gouty tophi occur in less than 10% of patients and develop approximately 10 years into the disease course. Lastly, M is for mucin deposits seen in scleroedema, scleromyxedema, pretibial myxedema, and follicular mucinosis. For scleroedema, remember IgD, type 1 associated with infections like strep, type 2 with gammopathies, and type 3 with diabetes. Scleromyxedema is associated with IgG lambda gammopathies. Pretibial myxedema is seen in hypothyroidism or 1-5% of Graves' patients, while follicular mucinosis tends to act benign in kids but has a higher risk of lymphoma in adults. 
All right, my friends, thanks so much for joining today. I want to share many thanks to those who have made this podcast possible, starting with my former program director, Dr. Karthik Krishnamurthy, for not only supporting this podcast from the get-go, but also adding time-tested clinical pearls that you can't find in the textbooks and journals. I also want to thank Dr. Sean Schmieder for his help with both the content and also with the many voices for our quirky cast of characters. More thanks go out to my brother Garrett and Dan Thompson for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents, including Dave Smith, Dan Hyman, Sandra Asuka, Jake Nelson, Wesley Carter, and Courtney Heron, who have all contributed in one way or another to support our social media platforms and create a super useful study guide that is available for each episode at grenzonederm.com. And that is with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. Another shout out to Jarrett Anderson for his work with the Anki decks that are also available on the website. And a final shout out to you, the listeners from around the globe who have faithfully listened and supported this podcast since its inception in 2019. Okay, that's the list for now. I'm Logan Kolb. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time here in the Grand Zone. This episode is copyright 2021 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.